0: My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up.
1: Hello, and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch.
2: And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas.
1: And we have a very special guest this week. Not that all of our guests aren't special, but uh, sometimes we're especially excited to talk to them. Our guest this week is Mark Bittman, legendary cookbook author, uh, author of How to Cook Everything and, and the new book, Animal, Vegetable, Junk. Mark, thanks for joining us.
3: Happy to be here, even though I'm not a innovator, entrepreneur, or whatever the third thing was. <laughs> yeah,
1: career changer. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> career changer. <laughs> So so let's just uh, kick it off with with the new book. Uh, tell us a little bit about it, and, and how did you come to write it?
3: Well, the book is called Animal Vegetable Junk, and it's, um, it's a story about the relationship between humans and food and agriculture throughout history up until now and what I think will happen in the future or what might happen in the future. And um, how did I come to write it? And I was writing... Um, I was writing about the intersection of food, climate change, nutrition, agriculture, et cetera, et cetera, for the Times and for other places. And I was always writing in thousand word chunks, sometimes 1500 words, every once in a while, 3000 words, but it was always little bits and most often 800 or a thousand words. And I just thought this is not coming together. At the beginning, I thought this is going to be a mosaic. I'm telling a story one little piece at a time but it kind of doesn't work that way. Like readers who read columnists don't remember each column the way the columnist remembers each column. So it doesn't wind up being a story. So long story short, I left the times and decided I wanted to write a a thorough analysis of this stuff or as thorough as I, as I could to the best of my abilities. And I spent a year or two thinking about what that might be and reading um, and then I came up with the title Animal Vegetable Junk, sold it to my publisher, the publisher of How to Cook Everything, um, and got to work. That was about uh well, was actually about five years ago at this point. Yeah. But um finished the book at the beginning of COVID and um did the editing and stuff during the during the pandemic.
1: Yeah, I, I was sort of struck by the expansiveness of the 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 time that you cover in the book. I mean, f- starting from prehistory or even pre-human history, and then and then it ends with COVID. So so you really you cover a lot of ground.
3: Well, there's two things about that. One is that I actually started. I have another introduction that's not published that started even earlier because I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted to give the sense of what time is like, or try to give the sense of what time is like. And I know a lot of authors of, who write about history and authors in general try to do that because because one way to be sort of optimistic and hopeful about humanity is to see beyond the course of your own life, which of course is just an instant. So I wrote this introduction in that spirit and my editor said, this is ridiculous, get this out of here. So <laughs> I, I did. Um, and the covid stuff i you know i was writing as i said i really i think i i dotted the final i's and crossed the final t's and all that probably in september um july august september we were still working on the book um you know it's just published this week so but i don't think you know i think there were there were opportunities until even september october to make tiny changes and it just felt like I know that, like a newspaper article, a book has to finish. You can't just keep fixing it and fixing it and saying, oh, if I could just get this last little bit of information in here, it will really be complete. That's not how it works. It's a moment in time. It's a longer moment in time than a weekly newspaper column. But it's still, here's what I think about food in the years 2017 to 2020, kind of like that. So... But at the same time, I felt like if I didn't at least mention that there was an election um, and I I did finish before the election and I didn't at least try to address COVID because COVID and food are related, of course, um, that I I would seem out of touch. So I did do the best I could to, to weave the COVID stuff in there.
2: I think that's such a great point about just capturing that snapshot in time while still making sure that you're addressing something which is so relevant to our lives right now, which is this pandemic and how it has affected food. And, you know, you just made the comment like, well, of course, COVID and food are inherently related. Um, Can you expand on that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people, when we think about COVID and food, people are thinking about Maybe the beginning of the pandemic with cooking at home or with having a hard time finding food products that we're so used to be able to find in this country.
3: Yeah, I still have stuff in my pantry that I bought in a panic, and I'm sure everybody does. Last March, when I was like, "We need to get 50 pounds of rice and 50 pounds of beans in here right away." Um, Yeah, that's not the issue. Although, I COVID did expose some of the flaws in our food system, which is interesting. And and COVID has uh has expanded or at least uh given some more deserved attention to our so-called emergency food system. And that that was a difference too. But what I mean when I say COVID and food are so interrelated is that, well, two things. One is that of course um you're more likely to die from COVID if you have complications, and many of those complications are the result of chronic disease, and most chronic disease is caused by diet. So um, COVID's mortality is enhanced by the standard American diet. If you're you're more likely to die of COVID, not to put too fine a point of it, if you eat a standard American diet than if you eat a healthier, more traditional diet. So um, that's, Yeah, that's mostly what I mean. The other thing that's interesting about COVID is that it's seen as a crisis and it's seen as a pandemic. And indeed, it's both, right? But um, 300,000 Americans died from COVID or complications of COVID in 2020. And over a million Americans died from chronic diet-related chronic diseases in 2020. And yet COVID is considered a crisis and diet-related Chronic disease is considered something we can't do anything about. Like cancer and heart disease and da 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 da. The way our healthcare system works, the way our system in general works, is that we're looking for a cure for cancer or looking for a cure for heart disease. But these things can be prevented by good diet, or much of it can be prevented by good diet or a clean environment or both, and so on. And we don't look at it that way because that way, when I say we, I mean, I mean. The powers that be don't look at it that way, because that way, preventing disease isn't nearly as profitable as curing disease. So there's not a lot of money spent researching what a good diet would mean that would long term prevent chronic diseases. We'd much rather figure out a magic bullet.
1: Yeah. And I guess one of the questions that comes up in, in both of those situations, whether it's a a sort of a shorter term crisis like COVID or a longer term crisis like uh, diet-related chronic disease is is the role of government in addressing that. And and historically, I think government has has gone both ways. They've uh, there have been uh, strides taken, positive impact as well as negative impact, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. So how do you how do you see government both in the in the U.S. and and globally? Because you know, obviously, different governments are handling it differently. Uh, how do you see government? Wh- what do you see the role of government in addressing those? crises?
3: Well, let's get off of COVID because it's not my field. I mean, <laughs> my observations aren't worth any more than anyone else's. I mean, I would say even one thing we learned, I'll say this, one thing we learned from COVID is that is that if something is perceived as a crisis, even the worst of our governments is forced to address it. So that's pretty good. We saw that. That's an interesting indication that if we are able to see climate change and we were able to see the food system as crises then government would address them um the other thing is that government is capable of addressing these things government can help determine what a better diet is and there are governments around the world who are encouraging good farming um there are governments around the world that are uh, limiting the sale of sale and marketing of junk food to children, for example, um, there are governments around the world who are doing much better in terms of making statements about and backing those statements up that food is a, the right to good nutritious food is a right that everybody shares and so on. So government can definitely play a role in helping people to eat better and helping agriculture to work better. Ours is not one of the world leaders in this department.
1: Yeah, and and I mean, you you write, uh, you know, there's a whole chapter about the Green Revolution, which which is also now sort of coming to a head in India with with farmer protests uh, related to very uh, maybe not very similar, but definitely related um, questions around uh, around a farmer's right to sell or a government's responsibility to support a farmer. Um, I, gu- I guess what I'm getting at is is we've seen a lot of situations where governments have have taken steps backwards or in in directions that. Either at the time they knew to be wrong, but were choosing to do them because they were more profitable for certain entities, or or they thought they were the right move and they turned out over time not to be. So how how does that like how, how do we as as civilians or or voters or um, engaged eaters think how should we be thinking about a government's role in in managing a, a broader food system?
3: Well, I love the term civilian, so I'm gonna use that. <laughs> um, you know, one thing you said 30 seconds ago is something that we should all think about a lot, which which is the co- very corny, um, but incredibly important, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Because a lot of mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. Um, and few of us do things wrong intentionally. We do things because they seem like a good idea at the time. And then Maybe, in the course of our lifetime, or maybe in the course of someone else's lifetime, it turns out that they were a mistake and and one of the things I've tried to do in animal vegetable junk is look back at these turning points in food and agriculture, and it's really agriculture that determines our diets more than the other way around. We grow what we can and we eat what we grow um, so there have been a number of turning points in the course of history where we, that is humans, made decisions that seemed good at the time, or at least seemed good to the people who were making them at the time, and have turned out to be damaging in the long run. The the thing is that now we can see things better than we have in the past. We know more than we have in the past. And if we make sound, intentional choices and decisions, we can actually improve things. Uh, doesn't mean we won't make mistakes but but we can uh move things forward a little bit at a time and evaluate them and uh make progress towards i mean for want of a better phrase building a better world, building better agriculture, building better diet, building a more just food system and a more just system in general um we didn't have as much knowledge in the pre-21st century as we do now, and maybe you could say that about every century, but there were a lot of things that we were blind to 500 years ago and 200 years ago and 100 years ago that we're we're not blind to now, and we can make better decisions. We need the civilians, need the power and the strength uh, and the political will to be able to do that. I can't remember what your question was. <laughs>
1: <Sorry>. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the other it's sort of early in the book, one of the points one of the points that you made that jumped out at me. I I, I do a fair amount of reading about historical supply chains. This is a niche that I'm particularly interested in. And and you you talk you read about uh, guano and the importance of guano as a uh, really a turning point in in the history of of agriculture towards industrialization of agriculture um would you would you tell us a little bit more about that story i had never come across that that in any of my readings it's a great story yeah. and it's
3: actually exactly one of the one of the potential turning points in the story of humans and agriculture guano is bird and bat shit it's um excrement of any seabird bats uh usually found on rocks um sometimes in caves and and it was found in a tremendous concentration in the 19th century off the coast of peru millions and millions of years of accumulated guano was found on this on this chain of small islands off peru um and guano as it turns out is as good an organic fertilizer as you can ever find not only is it super super high in nitrogen nitrates which which plants need it's uh, also got significant amounts of potassium and phosphorus which are two other key nutrients for plants so at that point um a lot of global agriculture seemed to be running out of land and and without going too deep into the philosophy of how you treat soil it was becoming more and more difficult to grow enough food on the land that was available with the current technology. So um, what was going to happen was either going to be a shrinkage in population, which is what the philosopher Malthus, Robert Malthus, thought was going to happen, or there was going to have to be a way to try to find, to grow more food, or we were going to have to go back to traditional farming methods Uh, regenerative farming methods and figure out how to organize society along those lines. It was really an opportunity to do agriculture right. It would have perhaps limited population, but it wouldn't have meant population growth, but it wouldn't have meant that people were dying of starvation. Um, And it would have meant, it might well have meant that, that we developed a style of agriculture that was less damaging to the earth and more nutritious and and so on. But instead, we started carting guano by the boatload from these islands off of Peru to primarily the United States, also Great Britain, in order to do what was becoming industrial agriculture, growing one or two crops at a time over large swaths of land. And in the intervening years, um, we found other sources of uh, natural organic but limited amount, fertilizer. And that bridged the gap between the early days of agriculture and the time that chemical fertilizer was invented, which was in the early 20th century. So by the time guano ran out, there wasn't a crisis about finding more nitrogen because uh, Fritz Haber, that was the name of the scientist, scientists had figured out how to draw nitrogen out of the air and combine it with hydrogen to form, uh, to create a form of nitrogen that plants could use. Uh, so chemical fertilizer was invented and there was no going back. So guano was a very important gap bridger between, uh, traditional agriculture and industrial agriculture, but it moved agriculture much closer to what we now think of as industrial agriculture.
1: Would you would you like to theorize on what our modern food or agricultural system might look like had guano not, had it not appeared? Been, I yeah. mean,
3: it, it's so complicated because can you make the kind of changes in agriculture that are necessary to protect the environment, to protect the soil, to protect human health and so on without tackling, for want of a better word, capitalism, without changing the entire system? And the, the answer is difficult to know it could there there were there were two or three directions things could have gone at that time. many people could have starved. there could have just not been enough um, fertilizer and and uh, there could have not been enough creative traditional farming in order to feed everybody. there could have been mass famines, or it could have been that there was a return or a redistribution of land. The issue in the United States, at least, has never been enough land. It's who owns it. So, what happened in the late 19th century is land started to be consolidated and 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 held more and more frequently in the hand of larger and larger farmers. That wasn't possible without industrialized agriculture. And the, the people who were suffering from that kind of transformation were small farmers and, in particular, African American farmers, formerly enslaved people and their descendants who were given no opportunity to own land at the end of the 19th century. So had those people been been allowed to farm? Because you probably know the number better than I do, but I think at one point there were 2 million Black farmers in this country, and I think now there are 50,000, something like that. Um, and that all happened in the 20th century. Had those people been given land to farm, had uh, small farmers of, of all colors of of all backgrounds been given land to farm and not been thrown off the land by consolidation uh, had we really been a nation of small farmers who were growing crops for our neighbors and regions to eat uh, rather than cash crops that was then turned into into processed food or into food for trade especially in the 19th and early 20th century had that happened, we would have had a kind of agriculture and a kind of society that looked much different. But that's, you know, we're kind of talking about a revolution for that to happen.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I think there have been those situations over and over again. I mean, you write about them in the book. We've seen them in other cases where whether it's the Green Revolution or somebody comes in to solve a, an immediate problem, usually related to scale, usually related to feeding a population. Um, and then that problem has repercussions down the road in in terms of you know in the case of the Green Revolution, GMOs and and corporate control of agriculture. In the case of of guano, I guess this this uh, industrial legacy of of inputs into a into a farming ecosystem rather than letting the ecosystem support itself um, is it, where do you see that going? Is that happening again, or is it happening differently now?
3: I think it's interesting you. Have mentioned the Green Revolution twice, and we don't really need to talk about the green Revolution. I don't think in the time we have but I do think it's interesting that the the success of the Green Revolution has in the last ten or twenty years finally been uh questioned because it was it had such a great name the green Revolution that it was such great branding that it was considered a success even before it started but um in recent years, and especially right now, it's been recognized that the green revolution was really, really was a marketing term, and it was an excuse for American companies to sell seeds and fertilizer and pesticides and equipment to the to farmers around the world, especially farmers who could afford those things, and once again left small farmers and uh, small landholders behind. So, um, what? What might things look like if things were organized differently? What might things look like if, if food sovereignty were given a priority, if people were, uh, if they were the kind of land ownership that would allow those who want to farm and want to provide food for themselves, their families, their neighbors, their villages, their regions, how would that look? That would really look different than the way it looks now.
1: Yeah, yeah, probably very different. Uh, let's take a quick break. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
0: My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a landian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I'm able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com.
2: And welcome back to Why Food Podcast. We are here today with Mark Bittman, author of the recently released Animal Vegetable Junk. And Mark, I do want us to talk a little bit about your role as an innovator in media. Because not only have you published more than 30 cookbooks, but you have recently, well, I guess it's not so recent anymore, but you launched Heated, which is an amazing platform that's tying in the issues between food and politics and labor and a lot of different social justice types of issues. So I would love if you would kind of tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in media and how you've kind of grown and created this media
3: empire. Well, empire is a bit extreme, but um, I was, uh, I mean, the beginning is kind of interesting, although it's f- f- close to 50 years ago. I was an anti-war activist and then a community organizer in Somerville, Massachusetts, but I was actually a terrible community organizer because I didn't really like talking to strangers, which is important if you're gonna try to convert people to your point of view. Um, So in this organization I was in, I was asked if I wanted to run the newspaper because I did wanna be a writer. I knew I wanted to be a writer. So lo and behold, I found myself running a newspaper in 1973, 74. So I learned a lot. I taught myself how to type, which is really important. I learned how to edit and start darkroom skills and layout and all this kind of stuff. And then years later, I started to write or try to write to make a living. And I I was a complete failure once again. Um, But then I started writing about food and for whatever reason that was, that worked. Um, And we could fast forward 20 years or so and, and, I got my column in the Times called The Minimalist, and I was an established food writer. I wrote How to Cook Everything, and I co-wrote a cookbook, two cookbooks actually, with Jean-Georges von Gerichten, so I learned a lot from that. Um, yeah, I had a career as a food writer, but I I realized around 2000, in the early 2000s, that I had an opportunity to expand beyond writing about cooking, writing about food and travel, writing about food restaurants, and so on, Um, and could start to write about some of the more important aspects of food, how food affects our lives, our bodies, the world, like that. And I started doing that for The Times, and that led to, in 2010, my developing what became the first uh food opinion column in a major newspaper in the United States or maybe anywhere. Um and I did that for about five years. And and then I, I as I said at the beginning, I wanted to do something a little meatier, no pun intended. So I wrote I started working on animal vegetable junk. Um heated, which is uh about to be defunct, or at least we're we're my team is about to leave it was an idea we had a couple of years ago uh, where we thought we could publish a bunch of stuff that was along the lines of the work that I've always done or I've done for a while, but didn't just involve me, that involved younger people, different voices, people who were friends of people who were strangers, but but turned, turned my my little situation into more of a magazine of, of different people. And so we're relaunching that uh, next week on Tuesday and it's bec- going to be called the Bitman project and it's going to be on Substack, but it'll be the same, the same kind of thing as he did only. It'll be a newsletter form, subscription newsletter form. And we already have something like a hundred thousand subscribers. So we're, we're hoping to bring, all of those people with us and then some, but it will be me and a team of people who will continue to write about all aspects of food, cooking, policy, nutrition, climate, labor, race, everything. So um, I'm really excited about that. I don't. I don't think it's going to be quite an empire, but but we've got. We've got six or eight regular contributors already, and I hope we wind up with many more and and that we can really bring a bunch of different views and voices into, into the food scene.
2: I mean, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with telling us your trajectory in the media space, because I think by transitioning now to Substack, it's, it's really just focusing on adapting and making sure that, you know, whatever platform it is in which you're sharing information is a platform that's going to reach people. And that's going to also be a sustainable business model, Um, which Substack with its paid subscriptions, we're seeing multiple people now being able to use that in a way where they are putting out work that's sustainable, that they're getting paid for and that they can actually like expect, you know, what the earnings will be instead of having to rely on um, maybe ad sales from a website or something like that.
3: You're, you're right. Um, but of course there's only room for so many people to, I mean, we're all, everyone on Substack is asking subscribers for $5 a month or whatever it is. And doesn't sound like a lot, but if you, if you subscribe to 50 things, it winds up being quite a bit of money so um we'll see how it goes i mean certainly the advertising model is everybody's having trouble with that no one thinks that it works uh heated we really didn't have a financial model with medium that worked so so that that was that wasn't going to do it and as i get older it's you know there are two things here it's harder for me to generate income by just writing, writing, writing. Um, when I was younger, I could, I wrote three, four articles a week and yeah, I could do that now, but I just, it's, it just feels like a different era. Um, and, and in fact, I, you know, I, I probably would get paid less than I used to get paid to do that. Um, so, so the, the other thing is that, that there needs to be room for people other than me to write. And I, I'm in a unique position in that my name attracts enough people so that I can sort of sponsor other people to be writing along with me. So this is the Bitman Project is going to be kind of a, a collective, a partnership um, into which we hope to bring many people and have lots of different voices and where I'm what a a guide or maybe even a publisher it's like i'm behind it and i do stuff but it's not all about me
1: what are the what are the kinds of stories that 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 format sets you up to tell that would be harder or, or impossible to tell in in traditional media
3: well it's gonna be a lot of crowdsourcing and and of course there's gonna be a lot of multi or I don't know, do we call it multimedia we're gonna do a lot of audio and a lot of one of the nice things about or one of the things that COVID's made clear is that people are willing to satisfy for sort of low quality media. So you can tape a Zoom call and and call that a story and we're gonna do some of that. But I think the crowdsourcing thing, the here's the way that five of us are doing something. What do you think about that? The building of a community, uh, the asking of the opinions of of readers and subscribers, as well as the Kind of gathering opinions of three or four or five of those of us who are involved that's really different than than what it's like to just write for a newspaper.
1: yeah um, I, I think one of the other uh, questions that that I wanted to talk about and Valerie and I were discussing earlier is is sort of the role of marketing in in food systems and whether it's marketing a media platform or marketing. A, a product obviously something i i think about on a regular basis you know i have a company selling a product um how and and not to keep uh, bringing up the green revolution although i guess I'm, I'm a little focused on it today but um that as a marketing stunt how how should we be talking about food systems in a way that is honest in a way that uh isn't misleading or if it is if it has to be misleading at least it's misleading with the best of intentions mm-hmm. just seems like a it it's just a, it seems like a very complicated issue and i I'd, I'd like to hear how you're approaching that
3: misleading with the best intentions is pretty funny <laughs> i mean i understand how that's an issue for you and it is an issue for me too and um i think all you can do you know as a as a person as an honest person and a, and as a person who tries to be honest i think all you can do is be open and saying I'm trying to do the best work I can. I also need to support myself. So so obviously I'm trying to make some money. You're supporting by buying this product, whether it's a spice or a or a piece of journalism, you're supporting me and the people that I'm trying to support um in my little business. And we all know that this is the case, but I think it's um it's useful to be upfront about it. You know, I had, uh, we're going to do some affiliate marketing. I think actually, Ethan, we've talked about this a little bit, but we're going to do some affiliate marketing, which even as recently as two years ago, when affiliate marketing was maybe more frequently called native advertising. um, Well, that's different, but okay. Even a couple of years ago, I would have said, harsh, I can't do that. That's not me. That really is disgusting. It's but now I think you just say, you know, we're we're selling this product because we believe in it, but we're also taking a cut of what we're selling um, because we need to we need to make money. I think that I think that people can accept that. I people I think that that's becoming increasingly common. I don't. There's nothing dishonest about it or unethical about it. Another thing that's super interesting is how much transparency there ought to be. And I, so we were talking to affiliate an affiliate, I'm not going to get specific, but we were talking to a guy whose product we really like, and we're going to write about it and sell it as well. And, um, or at least give our subscribers an opportunity to buy it. We're not going to sell it. We're going to say, here's where you would buy it. But what we, we think it's great. He gave us a breakdown of his costs and there's no reason to disprove believe him i don't think and and there were you know you think oh here's a guy he's going and sourcing let's say coffee um and then he's bringing it and he's roasting it and he's packaging it and he's distributing it each of those has a cost there were costs that you never imagined and there were also costs that were five times as high as you would have imagined um and and you know, the thing about how a farmer gets like a penny out of every dollar in the food system or whatever it is that farmers who create all this food actually get so, so little of the money that, that consumers, that eaters pay for a product at the end of the day. It's kind of like that. It's like if you are uh buying chocolate or buying coffee or in your case buying spices or buying fish or buying meat or whatever and then selling it on the market it is amazing what a small percentage of the cost the original product is and and when you expose costs um that's a really incredible thing
1: yeah yeah i mean when we when we look at the pricing of an individual jar the the cost of the spices in the jar is always uh, cl- close or at the bottom of the list in terms of what we need to spend to uh, to get it to a, a cook. Um, yeah, it's it still shocks me, it, but and I think that exists across the food supply chain, um, and and especially when you're talking about something like coffee, just because that's the example you gave. But anything else where there's where there's quite a bit of waste, right? Coffee, you, you do all this work to grow it and ship it and roast it and grind it and and then run water through it for two minutes and throw it away.
3: Um, the, <laughs> good point
1: the no just, calories <laughs> Yeah, right right uh right no nutritional value anyway not to crap on coffee necessarily but right, it's, right it's it's so I, I guess um right so how does this connect back into bigger questions about food systems and uh and misvaluing or or assigning the value in the wrong places or or to the wrong people um you know in in the book talking about uh, the ways that capitalism has kind of co-evolved with industrial agriculture um to present us with this situation where the thing that we actually want the product that we're purchasing uh costs is 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 a fraction of the of the dollar that we spend to buy it
3: well and the funny thing is that food should be more expensive not less expensive yeah. but but um when you look at and there are people who do this all the time now. And it's a terrific part of the movement. I think when you look at the true cost of food, uh, and you factor in the costs that are not attached to the food itself, it really does become quite expensive. So when you think of all the marketing, uh, the transcontinental or even transglobal, shipping, the packaging, um, the handling, all of the people in the middle that add to the cost of food you start to maybe see that if we had a more regional food system and one that that depended less on processing and more on getting real food directly to people we could both afford to spend more money on the food itself i'm not saying the costs would necessarily the costs to eaters would increase because we'd be spending less money on packaging and transportation and marketing and so on we might be spending more money on the food itself, which would need to be processed less uh, because we were trying to eat better, more real food, and would need to travel less because we were trying to grow it more regionally. Uh, That's the kind of system that could work. That's the kind of system that could pay farmers a fair price for their food, pay workers involved in the food system a fair price for their labor, and still get real food from farms to people to eaters at a reasonable price, but that's that's not how our food system works right now, because our food system doesn't try to pay farmers what they deserve, it doesn't try to pay workers what it what they deserve, and it doesn't try to get real food affordably into the mouths of. Eaters. Instead, it tries to make profits for various corporations. Those are two really, really different missions. And I I go into that quite a bit in the book.
1: Yeah. Um, And and kind of on that note, I want to ask one more serious question before we do our, our fun segment and wrap up the interview. Uh, we've seen in recent years, right, the shift towards more expensive food, towards paying more at the farmer's market or at Whole Foods or at other higher-end supermarkets. And and often that's very closely tied in to people feeling good about themselves, feeling like they are supporting regional food systems, feeling like they are supporting farmers who are doing things, quote-unquote, right, whatever that means. Um, but but we have also seen that that system is not scalable and, and only reaches the people who have the cash to, to pay the premium. Um, so... I guess, what do you see as the responsibility of uh, people with privilege, with money, with access to those kinds of food? What do you see as, as our responsibility to to change systems that might not affect us in the way that they affect other people around us?
3: It's up to each individual to decide what their responsibility is. I think uh, I like to think and, and I encourage my friends and people I talk to to subscribe to CSAs and maybe to overpay for that. CSA, if they can afford to, to support local farmers and maybe, again, over-support local farmers. This thing of pay what you can doesn't necessarily, or this thing of pay what you can doesn't only mean that people without money pay less. It should mean that people with money pay more. Um, and, And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't mean going and, and it doesn't, necessarily mean paying more for everything that you buy but if you can be in a system where for example for you you overpay for a CSA by 10% and every 10 CSA subscribers support a CSA subscriber who can't afford it all or you know if you're feeling flush you go to the farmers market and and you say I want to pay for the person in line behind me or whatever kind of thing that is obviously this is voluntary, but I think that's a way that that we can even things out on a very very small level. On a on a bigger level, I think it's important to support efforts to get land into the hands of people who want to farm it right. To support efforts to improve local food, improve school food, improve uh, uh, stimulate the growth of farmers markets and of CSAs and and so on. Of course, support legislation that that goes towards building a better food system and so on.
1: Yeah. Um, All right, Valerie, should we do some, some fun questions? I thought all this was fun, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you're,
2: I, I, I do like, obviously what you guys are talking about is, is completely beyond my, my knowledge about food, but I do, I do love Mark that you talked about school food just now and how it is important that we make sure that, you know, the food our students are receiving is actually real good food. And as, as someone who worked for New York City Department of Education for five years, I, I personally witnessed, you know, how we chose our contracts for who gets these big food contracts. And, you know, there is just so much room for improvement on that end in that space.
3: Yeah, not to not to drag that out, but New York has been one of the least progressive, well, not one of the least. New York has been disappointing in its move toward purchasing good food for schools and for other city departments. It just can't seem to get its act together to really develop standards that that would say we're going to buy only from suppliers who are reasonably local, grow a fair amount of organic use, treat their laborers well, and so on down the line, all the kind of standards that that we need to put into place in order to be buying real good food.
2: Absolutely. So, um, yeah, so let's do some rapid fire questions. Um, I'll start. Because spring is, will be springing in the next month, even though we are blanketed in snow here in New York right now. What what spring vegetable do you most look forward to every year?
3: Mm, you know, I know I should say, I sh- feel like I should say asparagus, but we don't make a big enough deal about asparagus in this country. And you, re- you don't know where it's coming from until summer, actually. So maybe maybe my mistake is thinking that asparagus is a spring vegetable in the Northeast because it's really almost a summer vegetable. I'm going to say spinach because it's really early. I love it to death. I can never get enough of it. Um, yeah, that's my favorite.
1: How about your uh, desert island kitchen tool? You're going to be on a desert island for a year. What do you bring with you? You mean one? One. Well, a knife. All right. <laughs> two. Don't think
3: you get what's, two. What's your second one? <laughs> what is my second one? I mean, these questions are always so hard because it's like, is a refrigerator a tool? Sure. I'd really yeah. like that. No, I guess not. Because, you can bring whatever you want. No, if I'm on a desert island, I want a knife. And then I think the second thing I might want is a fishing line.
2: Yeah, no, that's good. Because, see, you wouldn't even need a refrigerator.
3: You would just. No, you, you wouldn't have any use for a refrigerator. Exactly. <laughs> Do you guys have you watched Alone, by the way, which turns out to be a really uh, an interesting food show. It's this, it's a, sh- it's one of these stupid survival. It's not stupid though, but it's a survival <laughs> show. It's a survival show where they put people in the middle of nowhere and they have to survive one at a time. And it turns out it's all about food. There's enough. I mean, if someone gets injured, they have to give up, but for the most part, people starve to death. It's all about hunting and gathering food. And I, I, I'm addicted to it. I find it <laughs> quite interesting. Anyway.
2: Um, I haven't seen alone, but I have seen I think it's naked and afraid, which is Sounds pretty much, similar It's pretty much the same concept. It's um, it's can people find some protein to sustain them for the amount of time that they're there, basically. Um, but let's let's take the the tool to your home kitchen other and let's let's not say knife let's exclude that but what is the one tool as a home cook and it could be something like kind of novel that you really enjoy cooking with
3: i mean i know you want novel but the thing is that i use the same stuff as everybody else does and um i think if you have a sink and you have a refrigerator and you have a countertop and a cutting board and a knife and a set of pans, you can kind of do anything. So when you look beyond that, uh, let's see, I use my food processor a lot. I have a slicer because I bake a lot of bread and it's really hard to, it's really good bread and it's hard to cut with a knife. So I wound up investing in a slicing machine, which I like a lot. I use my mandolin a a fair amount um, because my knife skills are not terrific and it's nice to be able to Cut thin, even slices of things when you want to. Um, my coffee grinder back to that delicious <laughs> drink that we all love so much. I, I have to say, I the thing that I'm a little upset. All of those things are common, right? Although mandolin, maybe not so much. But the thing that I'm particular about is I do like ceramic U-shaped vegetable peelers like i like the style of a vegetable peeler that's u-shaped and i really like those ones that have ceramic blades. i'm not quite sure why but for the past maybe 20 years that's all i've used and i i really look for those
1: yeah yeah i, I completely agree that's i i use uh also only u-shaped peelers it's uh i don't know where that comes from but it they work so much better they're so much easier to handle
3: yeah it's a better angle i guess yeah
1: um, how about a, a great meal that you had that cost less than five or ten dollars?
3: Well, it's funny talking about the true cost of food. We treated ourselves I we were we had cabin fever the other day and um and I needed some Chinese ingredients that you know, I live in Putnam County, you can't get anything here. Um so we went over to we found this Chinese market that a friend of mine vetted and said, said, yeah, that place is actually great. But it was about 40 miles away over in Middletown. So we went over to Middletown and I asked the same friend who really knows the Hudson Valley where we should stop for takeout lunch on the way back. And he said, we'll go to this Peruvian place in Newburgh. So we did that. So we went to two sort of old, what you think of as old factory Upstate New York factory towns, both of which have probably majority non white population at this point, which is you know which is not what you would have expected or it is what you'd expect, but it still comes as a surprise, given what those towns used to be like um anyway, the simple Peruvian lunch was forty dollars, so um you have to go pretty far back in the past to find five or ten dollar Meals and um, you know, maybe that's as it should be, but I'm not quite sure how to answer that question because I'm old enough to remember going to restaurants in New York and eating like a king for three dollars a person. So, yeah, but yeah, it's just funny. It's no, just funny. You'll, you, when you live long enough, it's it, I mean, my father stopped taking taxis because he just remembered how cheap they used to be, he couldn't bear to couldn't bear to spend the money on what they actually cost now. So it's kind of like that. It's, it's funny.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great answer. Usually, you know, usually we'll get an answer about uh, street tacos in Mexico city or something like that, but uh, but I would would much rather uh, talk about the true cost of food. Um, (laughs) Valerie uh, anything else or should we wrap up?
2: Yeah, no, um, Mark, let, let everyone know where they can find you and your book.
1: Well, the, uh, the new project
3: is called the Bitman Project, and the best place to find it is at markbitman.com. And that is the best place to find everything related to me. And the book, of course, is called Animal Vegetable Junk. You can find it anywhere. Um, thank you guys so much for having me on.
1: Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Matt Patterson, our amazing sound engineer, to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. Uh, you can always reach us by email, why food at heritageradionetwork.org. You can reach me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. You
2: can reach me at Foodie in New York on Instagram as well.
1: Mark, thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you all next week. Thank you, guys.